0: Welcome to our Indie Street chat. The members of Bloodhound Picks and an occasional guest give their no BS experiences with current aspects of the industry. Hi, and thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Street, where I talk to a personal podcasting and horror journalist hero, Andrea Subasadi, who is the editor of Rue Morgue and also the co host of Faculty of Horror two things that I have brought up constantly within this podcast within our own writing and within my own personal writing it was a real pleasure to talk to Andrea for the first time outside of email exchange and it went wonderful and she talked to lot about publication and where it might go and just the process and also giving advice for people that may be interested in the future and how do you pitch and things like that so listen up because it's a really educational episode I hope we get to have her back on because it was amazing hope you enjoy Andrea thank you for joining me today oh my pleasure thanks for yeah so I just kind of wanted to start off with if you wanted to tell our listeners about your history and kind of how you came into horror
1: okay, so so a quick question, a quick and easy one to start. <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's an easy question. Um, it's not a quick one. Uh, I, my entry point into horror, I think uh, for for most people was was through books, really. Like I guess when I was a young adult, I was kind of devouring. RL Stein, like Goosebumps wasn't around yet, but he had that Fear Street series. Do you remember Fear Street? Oh, I, I think they're
0: making a movie about it. I think they're working on that. Yeah, I know it's um, Hulu or Netflix. I think it's Netflix. Oh, is it,
1: it a series, not a movie?
0: Or it's uh, it's movies, but I think it's broken, or it's, what, three movies that will be released each month or something like that?
1: Ah, uh, okay. One of those. Yeah. <laughs> It's not so clear-cut anymore. What's a movie and what's a miniseries? Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, from there, you know, it went th- to Stephen King and then into Stephen King movies. And so that was my entry point to the entire horror genre. That's, that's kind of how I became a fan. Uh, how I became interested in it uh, intellectually, I guess, came much later. I was doing my master's in sociology uh in ottawa and my plan at the time was to write about knitting i was interested in uh in how the third wave of feminism was kind of reclaiming the domestic arts and there was this big wave of knitting knitting was not only cool again but it was it was punk rock and it was resistance and i thought that was so interesting and then uh zach snyder's dawn of the dead remake came out And around the same time, 28 days later, and so uh, I became aware that zombie movies were having something of a renaissance, something of a, a third wave of their own, or I guess, yeah. Maybe the second wave, maybe the third wave, the first isn't really, anyway, yeah. that's a whole different conversation. But I wrote my master's thesis on, on zombie movies. And, uh, you know, from there I, I had a book launch party, uh, where I met the fine folks at Rue Morgue, um, through ne- working in Toronto, I met Alexandra West, and we started the podcast, and just as I met uh, the horror community here in Toronto, everybody was interested in doing really cool things, and uh, I eventually became spoiled for choice for horror activities in the city.
0: Great, and so, I mean, you did kind of mention the the podcast, which is Faculty of Horror, and um, I guess I'll kind of go off on a little tangent that, you know, when I was kind of first... Getting into podcasting, or well, listening to podcasts, I was trying to find something that was more academic and because, you know, just reading about the news or what the new movie coming out was never kind of interesting to me in that sense. So I remember stumbling upon Faculty of Horror and it became this, you know, it's one of those podcasts that I do, you know, listen to consistently where it's not just a single episode or whatever. It's every single one. And, um, no, about that, which is kind of a compliment to you. I remember this and, and I think we'll get into it in a little bit about kind of male podcasters versus women podcasters where it's this, um, I remember there was this, um, knowledge that you had in this fierce owning it, but then also you were willing to show in the most, you know, um, Compl- complimentary way this vulnerability where i remember you talking about you relating to the subject and stuff like that and it and yeah i was just able to really connect as a listener where it felt for myself at least
1: oh thank you that's awesome that's great to hear it's funny alex and i were talking about that recently we just recorded some bonus content uh for our patreon um Last week, and our Patreon is only about a year old, but we've been making the show for, I think it's going on eight years. I think it's going to be eight years in December 2020, which is astonishing. And she reminded me that early, early, early in the podcast history we were actually reluctant to use the word feminist we were reluctant to call ourselves a feminist podcast which now eight years later is just you know hysterical i think that's something that's very special about the podcast and definitely something that resonated with people not everyone mind you And when we launched the podcast, you know, I think we were also both new to the horror world and feminism was kind of a loaded word. It wasn't uh, accepted quite as warmly as it is now. But yeah, it's just funny that that was part of our journey, whether or not to use the F word.
0: Yeah, It brings up a great question kind of about getting into the, the horror industry, because it is one of those things where um, I've mentioned it a couple of times, um, like comic books there's this there was this mentality where oh horror is only for basically young white men and that was it you know that's how they marketed it that's how whatever and you know what we're finding more and more now is that that's not the case at all and it never was so i'd love to hear kind of what it was like getting started and even to modern day which i I assume we're going to get into all the events of 2020 and how that shaped horror too, but um, at least when you were kind of starting out.
1: Uh, Well, starting out, I think... I was,
0: uh, I was a guest on the Room Morgue podcast, and uh, they had me on as a guest because
1: I had turned my master's thesis into a book, uh, and so I was on to talk about that, and then uh, Alex West was a guest a little later. I think we might have been a guest together at some point. Um, so there were definitely opportunities afforded to me, and often... My first appearance was about my book, as I just said, but, um, but that was also around the same time that Women in Horror Month became a thing, and um, I returned to the Rue podcast as a guest, you know, to talk about uh, rape revenge and to talk about kind of like feminism in horror, and I think for a lot of women uh, involved in horror journalism and, you know, horror inquiry. That's kind of the entry point is, is you become the token female to talk about the feminized topics within the genre, um, which is a little bit, um, it's a little bit narrow. And, you know, I think that's something that at the time I was so grateful to even be invited that I wasn't very critical of it. But, you know, after a while, it's just kind of like I, I'd like to be invited to moderate panels that aren't just women in horror panels. I'd like to speak on topics that don't always pertain to rape or nudity mm-hmm. or feminism or stuff like that. Um, but that has happened, and it definitely took a couple of years um, of building your brand and showing that you've got the chops uh, to talk across the board. Um, and, you know, that's the thing with uh, with sexism is that it's, it, it's systematic and it's insidious. And, you know, nobody has ever said to my face, uh, you can't do this because you're a woman. But you, you get told that in various other ways. Um, you see who's getting gigs that you're maybe more qualified for, um, who's being invited to talk on subjects that you're not, you know, yeah. um, that comes through in other ways.
0: And so kind of moving into, I don't know how much you're wanting to talk about this, but moving into 2020, we had, um, which we're still dealing with, we have COVID, and there's um, the Black Lives Matter movement kind of really got a, a boost where it became more predominant. And then there was kind of certain aspects within the the horror community where without, I guess, giving names or company names or whatever, um, where, you know, people were starting to be outed as part as kind of like this as part of the Me Too movement as well. And where you could really see the horror community, I think, banding together and saying, well, let's or enough is enough.
1: Yeah, certainly. Yeah. I think partially it had to do with um you know just uh me too time's up um it was definitely a movement that you don't have to stay silent about things that are oppressing you and indeed we have many more avenues to do so if you want to do it directly or indirectly you can do it anonymously like all those avenues have opened up recently um but also i think as a result of the lockdown a lot of people are Locked down. Um, They're isolated, they're scared, uh, tempers are thin, and I think part of it is feeling like you've got nothing to lose. And so uh, that has emboldened people to come forward. I think also, particularly when it comes to the Black Lives Matter movement, it's if we are on the precipice of um, tearing down the old and building the new and putting new policies in place to protect people, um, then now is the time to air our grievances, um, because then you can be part of the Reformation as much as you can be part of tearing everything down. So, yeah, I think 2020 was kind of a perfect storm of factors to facilitate uh, that big reckoning. Um, It was a long time coming. Uh, A lot of the things that came up uh, had been bubbling under the surface for a long time and it was stuff that i had observed and maybe didn't feel super comfortable talking about because of my position you don't want to look like you're you know throwing shade on a competing publication but um, the fact of the matter is credit to everyone involved everything was handled appropriately um as far as i can tell with that particular issue uh black lives matter is going to be an ongoing commitment for us all against
0: racism and um I hope it continues to go well. So, kind of getting into that, how has that been moving forward with publication? I know there's um, been the push, too, where you switch to the issues online, which has been a thing for a while now, but especially in kind of this era, I guess producing a, a horror magazine, and like moving forward as you know, a horror community, as we've kind of talked about.
1: Yeah, I think... Um... Yeah, we're hanging in there. Um, I'm lucky to be in a situation where I can continue to work from home as it is I live in the room work manner so I like HQ is right here and that's fine we've always been a we've always been a small staff um, so my part-timer uh, wasn't coming in for a while toward the beginning of the pandemic but she's coming in now to help out with uh, mail out but our art director works remotely our managing editor works remotely everyone else is working from home so we're all very lucky that we are able to keep uh, making the magazine um, during these uncertain times I The trickiest thing in the beginning of all this was um, stores closed meant that distribution shut down, which meant that way less of our magazine were being purchased. And so um, we we simply couldn't print as many. And, of course, that was coming upon, I think that was the issue that I put uh, Nia DaCosta's Candyman on the cover. You know, I was so excited to have Candyman. We're so excited about this movie, so excited to have that cover story. And then just, you know, this all happens. So I'm grateful that we were able to still print it. We still have some in stock. They weren't on newsstands. And, you know, I hear from Rumorg fans all the time that part of their Rumorg ritual is to go to the newsstand and pick up the new issue and to find it and take it home. And So it saddens me that people were deprived of that experience, but we're lucky to still be going at all. Um, And as for the future, I mean, I think times are tough across the board um i'm not sure what it'll be if if remorg is going to be able to get all of the grants from the government that we got in the past the canadian government you know seeing as canada has to focus on keeping its citizens afloat and alive and um and our readership too i think uh, i think it's going to be tough times and uh hopefully we'll hang in there
0: i hope so too, and I think you know it's a, a great magazine that's always had a lot of in-depth conversation. And um that is kind of one thing that I've always appreciated it about it too, because there is this sense of where it's about where you also focus on the the independent and you focus on the obscure And really going deep dives in those as well instead of just, and I know um, on your podcast, you've talked a little bit about Blumhouse, but, you know, instead of focusing just on whatever they're coming out with or whatever, you know, the big tentpole, I guess you want to say, horror movie is.
1: Yeah, it's tricky. It's tricky to find that. Because first of all, being bi-monthly, so for example, now I don't know when you're planning on putting out this episode, but right now it's the it's toward the end of August. I am already working on the November-December 2020 issue. So all of the press releases I'm getting right now of, hey, we just put out a new album yesterday, or this movie is coming out next week, or in two weeks or in early September, like, I can't do very much with that, because by the time we get to November, December, it's going to be old news, so there's that, Um, and then there's also the fact that, with regard to covering indie stuff, or things that are on the festival circuit, I just... I prefer to run coverage of stuff that my readers can easily find. Yeah. So as much as I would like to you know, support indie film, if they don't have wide distribution, then I'm just kind of telling my readers about something that, They're not going to be able to look up for themselves, and that's a bummer. So I I think the most challenging part of my job is kind of towing the line between those uh, two tensions um, that I am giving the coverage that readers expect uh, at the quality that Room has always offered while still, um, you know, helping out the little guy.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think that's uh, kind of where I wanted to move on to discussing the future like based on everything that we've talked about, and you know, this year, I know from the the film portion of it, where people talked, where people have talked about, well, from here on out, theaters will basically be primarily for you know tentpole movies or you know the major blockbuster or event films, and everything else will go to online, and they'll do things like what the Invisible Man did, or things like that, where it's you can buy a ticket for $19 and you have it for 48 hours or stuff like that. What do you see, I guess, for the moving forward? And have we kind of hit a point of no return, especially for, you know, horror publication and horror? Uh, Well,
1: I think movies are big business, big, big business, big money making business, um, movie journalism is not, you know what I mean? So insofar as I work, I've got my fingers in that big business and, you know, I work with the PR and I work with the professionals. I feel like we come Two horror from very, very different places. I understand that these big studios want to make their money back on on the big releases that they had planned for this summer. And so I could understand why they would want to save it for theatrical, but um, I think The Invisible Man is a great example of how well a film can do. Dumped straight out on VOD. I think uh, Rob Savage is the host, is a great example of, you know, like, fans are thirsty, we're bored, we're stuck at home, we need something to watch. Uh, I'm not raring to go back into theaters. I am much more inclined to celebrate something that I can see from the comfort and safety of my own home. And, you know, if I were the one behind the movie, I'd be like, I'd rather people see it and celebrate it than necessarily make all my money back. But that's me. And that's why I'm porn. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Just kidding. No. no, I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. And, you know, I, I agree completely. I think that there is kind of this mentality that like, it also, in some weird way, it provi- has been providing more opportunity for the independent person or the independent filmmaker, where I've definitely feel like I've seen more independent or more smaller movies come out in 2020 that have been amazing that I might not have gotten to previously.
1: Well, yeah, and furthermore, uh, as the new normal comes in, I think movies are going to start to look pretty dated pretty soon. Um, I think eventually we're going to need to see some media with masks and social distancing. Or I, I think that was the first thing I thought of when I heard that Halloween uh, Halloween Kills is being pushed back an entire calendar year like this time next year our world is going to be so different is that movie still going to make sense
0: yeah no, I yeah, I agree completely and it's even the um, how they're filmed I think what somebody was saying I was talking to you before and they were kind of mentioning how even the whole process of you know you have Jurassic Park or Jurassic World whatever the yeah Jurassic World I guess is um You know, this huge movie with all of these casts and crew and extras and, you know, how can you really do that versus, you know, will things start moving towards these skeleton crews and, you know, having a small cast or something where you don't need 50 people on set and you don't need that type of size.
1: Yeah, a lot of change
0: coming. So, kind of, how do you think the, I guess the the genre will go in terms of its the type of stories that it's telling where I know with Rue Morgue, you released the, the plague, um, the plague issue. And then with faculty of horror, you did a summer of, you know, talking about viruses and talking about plagues and, in, and, and those are the types of movies that you've been looking into. So what do you think is going to be the next big wave?
1: Um, well, that's tricky to say. Um, history has shown us that when, Things tend to get really bad. Uh, Terrifying horror movies come out, but the mainstream takes a little bit less interest. People are kind of like, oh, you know, like after such a terrible time, people don't want to be scared. It's not always true. It's not often the case. Um, But I think that is kind of a a perspective from the executive level. Um, So I think indie films are going to have a good time. I think, you know, again, going back to Rob Savage's film, he was able to tap a nerve- Right when it was happening, uh, on a very low budget, very creative, and, you know, that film is doing really, really well. I think something that has come out in the roomwork pandemic issue and in our plague discussions on the faculty of horror, that, that whatever the threat, uh, be it aliens, be it disease, be it zombies... We need to see humanity coming together, and I think 2020 has been a very sobering year in terms of not being able to see eye-to-eye with our fellow human being on something as fundamental as Black Lives Matter, on something as fundamental as, you know, uh, the need for testing. Um, I I think that's going to be a hard pill to swallow, and I think there are many, many ways that that is going to manifest in our horror coming up. And I can't
0: wait. I'm, Bad times make for good horror movies. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I'm excited to see what happens. And I think I have hope for it, I guess, in whatever way we can. I know um, I've heard a lot where it's, you know, people have said where, oh, we're, it's going to the, get, you know, the invasion of the body snatchers or it's going to go back to the like paranoia kind of horror, I guess, that you we saw in you know, that pops up every couple of decades. Uh, yeah, could be. So I was curious, I guess, talking about going a little bit more into, well, we're backtracking, but um, Faculty of Horror and kind of how that fully came about, what led to it. And I, I've mentioned it a little bit, and it's one of those, and I kind of gave you praise, and it's one of those podcasts that even if I'm writing a review or even on this podcast itself if there's I talked about ravenous and it was one of those where I had only a couple minutes to really talk about it so I said um deferred it to your episode on on it of saying if you want to know more about it just listen to faculty of horror because it kind of describes a lot more than I am able to do and probably a lot more articulate than I am able to do so how did really that come about and I guess your goal with that and your mission
1: Came about from I had been a guest on the Room Org Podcast, as I mentioned, which was my first my first exposure to podcasting. I don't even know that I really knew what it was at the time. Room Org also had a bi weekly radio show. They were calling it Room Org Radio. And they had a couple of segments. They would play music. They had a host. I I think it was differentiated slightly from the podcast in that. Uh, it didn't have an RSS feed or something. Like, this was early enough in the technology that, like, it, it pretty much was a podcast, but we didn't call it that yet. Mm-hmm. But all this to say that Rumorg was kind of on the vanguard of this kind of technology. And so I became exposed to it by being on a podcast before I had ever really listened to many podcasts. And then Alex was also a guest on it. And then I met Alex and we hit it off. And she said, Why don't we start a podcast? And for me, um, having seen firsthand that all it took was a couple of people talking in a room, you know, I, I, I was friends with the guy who put together the room or podcast. So I was confident that I could ask them for any help that I might need. And then for Alex's part, she was a bit more cognizant of what podcasts were out there. She was a bit more plugged into that world. And, you know, so she was the one who said there is probably a market. For a podcast of two female lapsed academics talking about horror movies from a very personal and high level point of view. Um, there wasn't anything like that out there at the time, so we thought uh, we'd give it a try. And then as the podcast went on, again, she became um, more well read with the podcasting community. And I think as we gained traction, she was, uh, we decided to lean into the feminism because. It was working for us. And it didn't always. In the beginning, there were definitely uh, many criticisms that, you know, I just want to hear talking about horror. I don't know why you're talking about politics. I don't know why you're talking about your personal experiences and stuff. And it took a little while before um, before we really found our audience. But once we did, uh, they shared it among like-minded people. And I don't know if you've had this experience with your podcast where it's like drops in the bucket of listeners. I think the first year um, our listenership was very low. And then one Halloween, uh, the AV club or somebody spotlights us and then things start to snowball from there. And that's something that I've heard from, you know, YouTubers, uh, influencers, content creators. Usually it takes just kind of one break um, and then they kind of snowball and, and things get bigger and better. And so... Yeah, uh, over the years we received positive criticism and negative criticism, and but we stayed true to ourselves because we had demonstrated that you know being ourselves was resonating with enough people to keep going. And then it was about a year ago now, ish. I guess it was last September that we launched the Patreon, which was something that you know our mandate was always to offer our you know academic level observations but for free and to to really bring it down to earth and explain these concepts fully and the podcast is still free but now we're in a position where we can offer additional content to our super fans and make a couple of bucks um that we just put back toward the show
0: getting better graphics getting better t-shirt artists getting better equipment and all that good stuff it's been really cool Oh, that, yeah. And I've been kind of happy to be one of the people that's been along for the ride, but I guess kind of the quick question is that, wait, there, I didn't know that politics are supposed to be in horror. Isn't it just supposed to be for entertainment?
1: Oh, boy.
0: <laughs> no, that's uh, kind of interesting that you dealt with that, and it is one of those topics that we've talked about a lot, and uh, even for this podcast, it has been kind of uh, in a similar vein of that. It's like we just get a, a couple of listeners here and there. And then when I started doing these interviews or we would have one um, because the the rest of the podcast, we'd focus on independent and obscure horror. And there'd be one that somehow just struck a nerve with people or somehow had a, um, what was it, um, sweet home where then immediately after our we published our episode, I think Fangoria did a spotlight on it. And so it kind of helped weirdly enough, but that actually gets into kind of this, the idea, and I know you've talked about it on the podcast and some of the, the issues and um, the struggle with um, being on social media and kind of the, especially moving forward with this industry of almost having to be on it consistently. I mean, I see a lot of people where it's, you know, if they're in Eastern Time Zone, it seems like at three in the morning they're posting when I'm doing some work. But then I see something posted from eight AM or some crazy thing like that.
1: Oh yeah, I, like from a business standpoint, it's um, you can't afford to ignore it. And I think, I think you know, when I first started it. At- Dante. When I first started at Remorg as copy editor, like Remorg didn't have uh, a Twitter, and I was like, "Guys, we really need to get on Twitter." And so they were like, "Okay, you could do it." And I was like, "Oh God!" And I remember being kind of intimidated to, you know, represent such an institution uh, <laughs> yeah. to the world on social media. And I think that's something that every every business kind of has to go through is that you need to have your corporate voice and then you also need to kind of share that personality. I come up against that, um, for faculty of horror, obviously, because being a, being a digital show that lives on the internet, we have to have a very strong internet presence. And then also just even for myself, um, you know, I consider myself uh, a brand and I have certain, uh, roles and responsibilities that pertain to these institutions, but I also have my personal outlets where I can give my, um, personal thoughts and uh i I take all that really seriously because um i think people who listen to the show and read the magazine i don't want them to see me as uh as too distant and too remote i want to be available to interact with
0: the community and i think that's the best way to do it and i think that's great and it's kind of always gonna um, especially when i um pitched Uh, I've pitched several ideas to you and I had the pleasure of writing a couple and um, I remember it being this crazy element for me at least pitching of just assuming oh I'm going to send out this email and then not receive anything back like like usual or whatever and um, because I'd only done little things here and there and I remember um, yeah you messaging back and I can't be making it very personable, and it meant, you know, and it and it yeah, it had meaning meaning to it. There was you know somebody behind the.
1: I'm glad to hear that, Craig. I wish, I truly wish I could get back to absolutely everybody who pitches for the magazine, but you know, uh, I, I think maybe if I had a bigger staff, um, such that I didn't have to take care of. Um, so many other operations within the magazine, Um, you know, so so part of it is is a time crunch and like just a tremendous volume of correspondence, but also a lot of the time people pitch something and it'll be good, like a good pitch. Just, just why now? And, you know, sometimes a pitch that seems irrelevant uh, a month ago will become super relevant in the next month or a pitch that doesn't really have a tie-in to anything especially relevant happening at the moment could make a good sidebar to another story that is relevant to what's happening at the moment um, so I read it, every email that comes in I save every pitch that comes in and I think um, you know sometimes people are, are like can I get a yes? Can I get a no? It's like, well, if the answer isn't yes, it's usually maybe, yeah. unless it's no, in which case I'll tell you no. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Um, I, I think a lot of writers who write for blogs uh, are accustomed to very immediate correspondence, and you know, maybe they don't realize that hey, by pitching something to Roomorg now, it's not going to run until months and months from now because print deadlines are so crazy. Um, but I don't expect people to know that. It's it's, it's a different age, and. You you know insofar as I expect people to be
0: patient with me I'm patient with them yeah I, I mean I've had nothing but kind of pleasant interaction with you so I mean I'm content but that kind of gets into I guess for those that are interested in listening what kind of recommendations would you have them for pitching and-
1: oh boy um well, geez, there are a lot. Um, for one thing, if you're interested in genre writing, and I'm not saying this to crush anyone's dreams or be mean, um, nobody really writes for Room Org full-time. And and I say that as somebody who was employed full-time for Room Org. I, I wish I got to spend more of my day writing. Um, most of my day is air traffic control and social media and chasing deadlines and chasing images and proofing and and, and kind of stuff like that. So I I think people need to have um, realistic expectations of what is out there in the industry for a paid gig. Uh, And if you're hanging your hat on the idea of, you know, retiring and just writing about horror movies all day, you're, you're in for a bit of a surprise. And furthermore, I think people sometimes hear the faculty of horror and think, oh, um, you know, they only talk about the movies they want to talk about. Um, but if you want to be a freelance writer, it's going to, you're going to be assigned movies that don't interest you. You're going to have to talk to actors that don't interest you, that maybe you don't especially like, uh, who are boring. It's transcription. It's, it's not as glamorous as it seems, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, But further to that, when it comes to pitching the magazine, you certainly want to have, you want to have a strong voice and you want to have a strong personality. And the fact of the matter is you are pitching me on a written piece. And so your pitch, you can pretty much demonstrate to me whether or not you can write in your pitch. I saw a Twitter thread recently that was like, let's all admit that cover stories, cover letters don't matter at all in giving you a job. And for me, I really feel like the opposite is true. Like, I don't care if you send me a resume that says that you wrote for this outlet and this outlet and that outlet. Like you can send me samples for those outlets, but the fact of the matter is those were all edited. Somebody edited those before they posted. So that's not actually an accurate representation of your writing. The best representation I have of your writing is your pitch, is your outreach, is the way you're able to talk to me and make me feel like, hey, what you have to say um, is important and is relevant and people would want to read it. So I know that's not a very concrete tip, but uh, yeah. Your pitch, you have to sell me on the idea. If you tease me with an idea and then expect me to be like, oh, tell me more, odds are I won't because I don't have time for that. <laughs> you know what I mean? If I have to ask you to tell me more, then you've already already—you've already missed the boat. You've got my attention. Give me the elevator pitch. Sell me on it. Tell me why. Tell me why now. And, uh, yeah, take it from there. And, and the one thing maybe I'll add to that is that, It's not very often that somebody pitches a story and that pitch is accepted exactly the way it's pitched and it just goes like that um a lot of the time our features uh are the result of a collaboration between me and the writer where you know a good idea or a good opportunity has to be kind of molded and massaged to fit the tone of the magazine and to fit in with other features that i'm planning and stuff like that so um i guess That's my other tip is just to not be too precious about your idea and be willing to work with me uh, on where it could go and how best it would fit into the magazine.
0: Yeah, I think um, that is something that I'd agree kind of gets lost a lot of times is this concept of the, the collaborative effort that I think goes through something like that. And I think there is this, okay, I'll just write it like this and then it'll be posted and then that'll be it. But there is so much more, I think. Those are great tips.
1: Yeah, and I think I think that's the result of blog culture. I think for blogs often people can just treat it as their diaries, right? They can be like, Well, you know, I was eight years old when I first saw this and I grew up with it and blah blah blah. And that is fine for a blog post, but that's not the kind of writing that we do in the magazine. And you know, I think that back in the day there was a lot of horror magazines and everybody was reading and collecting horror magazines people knew that but nowadays uh you know i think people see room Morgan, and they're like oh i can write the same way and get paid for it <laughs> it doesn't really work that way it's a different kind of writing it's a different kind of skill it's something anyone can do and i strongly recommend uh i think blogging is really great practice on developing your tone and your voice but we don't run the same kind of stuff as we would online and that's important to note
0: i curious if it is part of the I mean I'm assuming it is but you know you have the I don't want to say toxic but um, you have the fan culture which is like you know these obsessive fans that know about it so they um, about something like I don't know Friday the 13th and so you know they say well I'm going to write about it and you know in the same way that you know you have people um, making um, was it, the petitions to change a Star Wars movie or whatever it was because they didn't like it. So there is kind of this, with social media, there's created this... I know people complain about horror Twitter or film Twitter is what they call it. Uh,
1: there does seem to be an air of fan entitlement at the moment. And I think that is that is also um, that is also part of the story with regard to blogs. Blogs have given everyone a platform so everyone feels like they can have a voice. And uh, there's positives and there's negatives to that.
0: I agree. So I guess kind of talking about since, um, as I mentioned before, this podcast, we'll focus on the independent and the uh, obscure your most of the time and so i'd a different topic love to hear about like any works that you really champion that you think deserve more eyes and it can be film it can be a book it could be whatever
1: hmm. i think a film that has been on my mind recently we actually just ran a feature um It's not on shelves yet, but the September October edition of the magazine, uh, we ran a big feature on films that you haven't seen. Of the last twenty years, because now being twenty twenty, we could actually run a feature that covers you know films of the new millennia. And I had such a tricky time with my writers um, because they'd be like, you know, I think the film is overrated, and I'd say, no, no, the assignment isn't overrated; it's overlooked. Yeah. You know, like the films that you didn't hear about good or bad. And so I think that's a, that's a really interesting distinction, especially when it comes to independent stuff. Um, one film that I consider sorely, sorely overlooked, and not only does it appear in that list, but it's going to be the subject of the next Faculty of Horror episode when we return from sabbatical in September, is Pie And that one uh, is distributed through IFC Midnight. and the. Writer-director Adam McDonald is Torontonian, so he's like my neighbor, he's like my homeboy, and his horror movie is fantastic, and yet I didn't hear anything about it. For the longest time. And then I finally checked it out and I loved it. And I lobbied to have it screened here in Toronto. And Adam was just like, you know, this is the first time I'm getting to see it on the big screen in my home city. And I'm like, that is fucked. So I highly (laughs) encourage anyone hearing this to check that one out. It's magical. It's marvelous. Um, Let's see. What else? Uh, The festival circuit is ramping up. So I'll be checking out a whole lot of movies through fantasy and Tiff coming up. Um, I caught The Reckoning, which isn't really independent, uh, nor would I necessarily recommend it. Hmm. I'm trying to think of books, too. I've definitely read some great ones this year. Um, I can recommend uh, Max Brooks has a new book out. Um, he wrote World War Z, and his new book uh, concerns uh, Bigfoot, the Sasquatch title is escaping me right now. God. It,
0: um, the de- de- evolution or the
1: de- um. That's it.
0: Yes. Evolution. Thank yes. you.
1: Okay. I was hoping you might know. Yeah. Definitely recommend that. Um, Daniel Krauss has a book out that uh, that he finished. George Romero, it's George Romero's unfinished novel that he finished. Uh, I actually just interviewed him a couple of days ago, so that one's hot in my brain, too. That one also has an amazing audiobook. If you're interested in audiobooks, I think it's available on Audible. and The narrators they got are really great.
0: Oh, yeah. No, that's a whole nother topic, I guess, for me, because I'm a big fan of... Um, audio drama, too. I right? uh, listen to uh, uh, Tales from Beyond the Pale and
1: yeah, I'm told that that's, um, that's kind of becoming the next big thing, um, and I guess the difference between an audiobook and an audio drama is that it's, it's, it's more actors, it's less
0: narrated and more like a roundtable read-along Yeah, yep um, Yeah. especially with that one it and I've had the pleasure of writing on it a couple times and interviewing um, Glenn McQuaid about it where um, yeah, some of them There's barely it play, it's almost more effective than any movie I've seen in the past, you know, 10 years or 20 years or something, where some of them just really hit you. I think because of that element of, you know, it's scarier in your own mind than actually seeing something on the screen, right? But no, it's been, um, there was actually something kind of as we're wrapping up a little bit that you were talking about that I'd love to go back on, especially when we're at the beginning of um, the movies that you haven't seen in the past 20 years of retouching on um, this. I noticed there is this thing with some people when they talk, and it might be fan entitlement or the blog culture, but there's this mentality with film criticism or book criticism where if somebody doesn't like something on a personal level, then it's instantly a bad movie, and I thought that was something great that you always put in Faculty of Horror that, you know, it's your personal preference if you don't like it or not, but there is kind of that more and more I've seen where I've heard people talk about, oh, Midsummer is like a student film, and well, you know, you cannot like it, but you, know, you can't deny that it's not well crafted.
1: Yeah, well, it's a tricky thing, I, I mean, definitely there's a line between, um, uh, Professional appreciation of a film. You know, there are people who are, you know, uh, educated and certified to be film critics, and these people aren't necessarily giving their opinions. They're giving, they're giving an, an educated assessment, which is still um, a subjective thing. But uh, but but it should be noted that you know some people are professional film critics, and other people are just people on Twitter. <laughs> but uh, that said, I think when it comes to the horror community. Horror is such a, you either love horror or you don't care about it, you know, there's not really much in between. And so when I meet someone who's a fellow horror fan, I tend to make a lot of assumptions that we have a lot in common. I tend to assume, for example, that they are not, you know, the uh, racist or misogynist yeah. or I, I tend to assume that they are aligned with what I consider a very progressive film genre and I assume that we have so much in common and so if there's a movie out there that I really love that they don't really love you kind of feel like but wait I thought we were the same yeah. you know what I mean I thought we were on the same team here so I think within horror appreciation uh, tastes are a little bit more loaded than maybe they are when it comes to you know a a comedy film or a drama film it's like oh well you didn't like schindler's list like I, i don't really give a fuck but when it comes to horror movies, uh, I do give a fuck because I take them so seriously and they reach me so deep in my heart that um, that I, I'm always fascinated to find out where that um, where that subjectivity lies with someone else who didn't like something that I really loved. And I think the podcast has been a brilliant exercise in that because Alex and I are very close friends, and you know I want her to love the things that I love so that we can love them together and we can you know get equally excited about. A sequel to that for example or a re release or reissue and but we have a lot a lot in common and it's good to not have some things in common.
0: Yeah, no I I agree completely and um and we found even um in the podcast itself that um there's been plenty of points where there's movies that I will I guess I'm I'm deemed out of the three of us the nicer one that I'll give more Passes to things for certain, but there's definitely is that difference that sometimes it it gets to not to be heated, but that it's a very strong opinion about you know somebody liking one and then somebody liking another. I know um, because I know you both enjoy this. That, you know, there's one member of our group who absolutely did not like um, Suspiria, the remake. And and so there was kind of this back and forth that's been happening with that and, you know, other movies of that nature.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, that makes sense. Yeah. I've been there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but, no, I know that kind of wrapping up and I'd just love to let you to help promote anything I can. So is there any sort of... How can people find you? How can people look you out? Are there any projects that you're working on for the future that you'd love to discuss?
1: Uh, well, there's a couple of things percolating that I can't discuss, which is really exciting because there were many, many months where I, um, you know, nothing was happening because we were all on lockdown. So I didn't have the luxury of having secrets. Um, but <laughs> I will definitely be talking about those things soon. So the best way to find out about them is to follow me. On social media, uh, I'm on everything. I feel like it's harder to avoid me on social media than it is to find me, but I'm definitely on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Um, check out Rue Morgue if you're interested. We're uh, one of the last ones standing. We're proudly independent, and um, I think the quality of our design is second to none. Our art designer is uh Incredible, And I, I think people who didn't grow up with horror magazines, which is more and more the case uh, in 2020, don't really know quite what it's like to be holding it in your hand and physically turning the pages and, uh, and how that feels. So I really invite you to check it out if you haven't. And then, of course, the Faculty of Horror... We're going on year eight. Um, We're going to have our annual t-shirt drive pretty soon, so look for that. And if you enjoy that content, we've got a Patreon now with uh, a lot of different tiers for a lot of different kinds of bonus content. I think that's it.
0: Okay. (laughs) No, that's great. And I'm going to be looking out for your big news. So thank you so much for joining me. Big Thanks for having me, Craig. This was fun. Yeah, thank you. Bloodhound Picks podcast is part of the Morbidly Beautiful Podcast Network. Produced by Josh Lee, Craig Drum, and Kyle Hintz. Music by Raymond Seed. Editing by Kyle Hintz.